And all right, so far so good. We had kind of a little bit of a disaster at the end of Sunday school, so we're just praying that all this will will work fine this morning. Uh, we continue our look at the book of Revelation, which is about Jesus coming again. If we take away only one thing from our uh, study of the book of Revelation, it is uh, the passage that we are going to study this morning. And Lord willing, we make our way through uh, both verses 7 and 8. Jesus Christ is coming again. And that, that, is, that is the hope of uh, Christianity in a very succinct uh, nutshell. The God of the universe is going to make things right again. Uh, he, he created this world perfectly without error. It was very good in his eyes. Genesis 1.31 says there was no sin, there was no death, there was no uh, dementia, there was no disease, there were no heart attacks, there was nothing wrong. Everything was perfect the way he created it to be. And then uh, mankind was offered uh, a choice. We're always given the ability to think and to make decisions, but uh, God gave man that free will and we were offered a, Adam was offered a choice and uh, make no mistake, each and every one of us would have uh, done the same thing he did. And uh, he sinned and we brought sin into this world and essentially everything was wrecked by that sin. And that's why we have disease and death and heart attacks and all of these things uh, in this world today are, are ultimately the result of sin. But, but God, one of my favorite phrases of the Bible, God has a solution and that solution is found in Jesus Christ and the fact that he is coming again. And that's what the book of Revelation is really all about. He is coming again to establish his rule and reign over this earth. That's what we read about in uh, Daniel chapter 7 in our scripture reading. You know, we kind of, we could have stopped halfway through the chapter and I just thought, you know, we'll take the extra few minutes to read the entire thing because we get not just his vision, but also the interpretation. And that is that Jesus Christ is coming again to make things right. And clearly, from Daniel chapter 7 and the book of Revelation, the things that we see there, uh, the saints of God ruling and reigning with Christ upon this earth and sin being eradicated, that isn't happening today. In case you, you haven't uh, read the news this morning, things aren't great everywhere as far as our circumstances go. There's still a lot of sin and, and problems in the world. So clearly that isn't happened. It hasn't happened yet, but uh, based upon the word of God, it will happen one day. And the book of Revelation tells us how those things will happen. You know, there's mention of a beast and this little horn and the ruler and the, the speaking these uh, blasphemous things against God. And all of these kinds of things are described in Daniel. And then we just kind of get the end of the picture. Oh, Christ is coming again. He's going to establish his kingdom. Well, how is all of that going to take place? Good question. The book of Revelation tells us how those things unfold and how one day Christ will come to rule over this earth with his people ruling and reigning with him. And so in order to set the proper scene for Revelation, in order to understand what it's talking about, we spent some time looking at this background information written by the Apostle John. That gives it uh, apostolic authority, if you will. Someone who was a direct student of the Lord Jesus Christ is now telling us this information. That's important. He wrote it in A.D. 95 or 96, somewhere in that range. That's important because it's not 
written before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which some will say, the book of Revelation, nah, that's all in the past. It's already happened. That's when the Romans destroyed the temple. And so for that to take place, for that to be true, it has to be written before the temple was destroyed. Well, we know uh, that it wasn't. Just historical documentation shows us that this book was written towards the end of the reign of Domitian, a Roman king. It's written to seven literal churches that existed at the time that John was alive. Uh, We understand this book no differently than we do any other book of the Bible. Uh, Just because it's prophecy doesn't mean we suddenly throw out all the rules for interpretation and and we just kind of make up a story to go along with it. No, the words on the page, we've seen that in our study right in verse 1, that he is going to show these things to people. He testified about these, the, uh, these things that we see. There's a lot of language there that indicates to us that this is God revealing these things to us because he wants us to know them. So we need to interpret the words the same way that we would uh, interpret Ephesians or Genesis or any other book of the Bible, the same way that we read uh, Shakespeare or George Orwell or whatever it is that you're, that you're reading. The author has a purpose that they're trying to convey to the audience and you uh, interpret it using consistent, literal, grammatical, historical method in order to understand the message. No different in Revelation than anywhere else. John was commanded to write verse 19 of chapter 1, the things which you uh, have seen, that's chapter 1, the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, and the things which will take place after these things, chapters 4 through 22, that's the structure. And we're studying this book to learn about God and his provision for sin. We learn, uh, like so many other books of the Bible, uh, we learn primarily, we're just using the book of Revelation to learn about God and to learn the things that, in this case, what he's primarily, what he's going to do in the future for us in order to build us up in our faith of him. Uh, We saw in verses 1 through 3 that this is a a revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, it's something that we can can know. It's here for us. There's a blessing in in knowing these things, heeding these things, not just reading them, having academic knowledge, but heeding them. There's a blessing in that, verse 3. The time is near. It's kind of, the things that are described here are really the next events to take place. Everything leading up to this, these end time events has taken place. So it, it, is, it is next on the, on the agenda for God. And over the last uh, couple of weeks, we studied verses four through six, again, seeing the author, the audience, He's offering grace and peace to us. Uh, and these, we saw that this, uh, this offering of grace and peace is coming from our triune God, the God of the universe, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, this one who is worthy of our praise. Important to see this as Uh, these churches, this audience here uh, for this letter by extension to each and every one of us who are believers in Christ. This message is for us really just as much as it was for them uh, when it was written. There are seven literal churches that existed. This isn't some kind of allegorical uh, statement that John is making here. And oh, these churches, you know, well, boy, back in that first century, they had a lot of martyrs. So that's just describing the beginning of the church. That's not a, that's not a consistent, literal, grammatical, historical method of interpreting uh, the words. Uh, and, it, and it's important for us to see that this message really is for 
all of us. And when we get into chapters two and three, we're going to, when we have individual messages from Christ to these literal churches, it's going to be important for us to see how these, these messages apply to us today, just like the book of Ephesians does still today or Philippians or any other letter that was written to churches, we obviously can take away a lot of the information uh, that we that we find in those books. It's not just, uh, we're not just studying, uh, you know, a letter from uh, Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptists or something here. We're studying the word of God to these people, and by extension, it's to us. So we, so we shouldn't just dismiss it as it. Oh, this is allegorical, and it's describing uh, churches in the past. No, it's it's written right to you and to me, and it. Uh, and there is a blessing for hearing, reading, hearing, and heeding the things that we find in this book. And so today we see that Jesus is coming again. Praise the Lord for that. We'll look at the power, the presence, and the piercing, and the preeminence. I kind of shrunk it down to three points, (laughs) but still got the alliteration in. I was kind of happy with that one. Uh, But notice uh, verse 7, where we begin with the power that Jesus is coming again, not not unlike at all what we read in our scripture reading in Daniel chapter 7. Again, we see more detail here in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. A very definitive statement that Jesus Christ is coming again with the clouds, and everybody we're going to see is going to mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. He is obviously coming with great power, and the, and the language here describes that to us, shows us that. But notice first, that very first word of verse 7, behold, that is actually a command. It is an imperative. This is a command to look at these things. Notice this. Be aware of this. And it's the first command, actually, in the book of Revelation. There's going to be uh, several of them, obviously, not much unlike... uh, other books of the Bible, but I'm, but if memory serves correctly, the majority of the commands that we're going to see here are this in the book of Revelation are this same word. Behold, pay attention to this. In other words, the book of Revelation is not something that we should just disregard. Oh, wow, we don't talk about Revelation in this church because there's so much disagreement about it. Well, that would be a mistake, obviously, because again, there's a blessing for reading, hearing, and heeding the words of this prophecy. Oh, we're commanded to behold these things. About 25 times we see this word uh, used in the book of Revelation. And uh, many times it's tied to these concepts of Christ coming again and the results of him coming again. Notice Revelation 21 And verse three, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. That is a promise from the book of Revelation that one day in the future, believers in him in Jesus Christ, will literally dwell, live with God in his very presence. Command, behold, notice this, pay attention to this fact that one day in the future, you as a believer in Christ are going to live with the living God of the universe. What, a, what an incredible promise that is. Verse 5 of Revelation 21 it, says, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, 
I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. God is going to make all things right again. He is going to make all things new. That's what's being described in Revelation 21 and 22. The new heavens and the new earth, the way life will be uh, for eternity with God. No disease, no death, no uh, no uh, unwanted uh, workings of government against you and your conscience and these kinds of things. That will be eradicated. We will live in the freedom of Christ for eternity with him, uh, literally there uh, as our God and Savior and uh, leader of our lives. Revelation 22, 7, another instance of this word, behold, being used, says, and behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to this book. I am coming quickly, and there is a blessing for heeding the words of this book. Revelation 22:12 Behold I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done I am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end the book of revelation is certainly a book of the bible that we should be uh, paying attention to this is this is a command that cannot be ignored coming to us from God himself. This is not something that we should disregard. Notice that it says that, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And in our uh, scripture reading, we saw very similar language describing the son of man in the book of Daniel coming up to the ancient of days and him uh, being uh, with the clouds. Notice Daniel 7.13, Daniel speaking, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, there's that word again, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That, uh, well, that phraseology there, all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. That would have been very uh, eye-opening to Jewish people. You know, Daniel, of course, is writing his book to Jewish people. And, you know, they, they, for good reason, could have had the impression, wow, this kingdom, it's, it's all about Israel. Uh, it's all about us ruling and reigning and these kinds of things. But notice that, that all the peoples, nations, and in case you didn't get it, men of every language might serve him. Wow, how is that going to happen? Oh, good question. The book of Revelation tells us how that is going to happen. And uh, this, is, this is clearly a reference to that. And if you have an NASB, it's even in all capital letters there. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, uh, which is the way the translators of the NASB let you know that this is uh, at least a reference to the Old Testament. A lot of times when the, when the author is directly quoting the Old Testament, you'll see the same, same kind of technique used there to, to show that. And the interesting thing about Revelation, or one of the interesting things anyway about Revelation, is that there are no direct quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. However, of its, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there are around 400 verses in the book of Revelation. Somewhere around 260 of those verses are references to the Old Testament. And like we've mentioned before, that's 
probably one of the reasons why there's a blessing to reading, hearing, and heeding these things is because uh, well over half of the book is reference to Old Testament. So you've got to know your Bible to understand what is being spoken here. And this is one of those cases. He is coming with the clouds, a clear reference to Daniel chapter seven. He is, Jesus is the son of man that Daniel is describing there, coming up to the ancient of days, God the father, receiving a kingdom and then ruling and reigning upon the earth. And the uh, clouds, at least according to the, the TDNT there that you see on the screen is the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And uh, I hesitate to bring that up as a reference. There are a lot of, there's a lot of good information in books like that. This is a, a theological dictionary. Uh, and so you kind of, you have to be careful when you use those sorts of, of references because the authors very much have a theological perspective. That's what they're telling. It's a theological dictionary. And so they're, they're giving you their uh, theological opinions. And again, there's some really good information in there, but you just have to be careful uh, what, you're, what you're reading there. Uh, but at any rate, the, the in this dictionary, it has the, uh, uh, a, an article covering clouds and their use in scripture. And they're often used to describe uh, great po- the power of God and kind of doom and this sort of thing. You know, the Bible uses poetic language. Oftentimes uh, we see that in Daniel. We'll see it in Revelation. And just because it's using figures of speech and, lit- and uh, figurative sort of of language, poetic language, there is a meaning that is being conveyed. And there's only one meaning that, that, is, that is being conveyed in that. Uh, Isaiah chapter 19 and verse one is a good example of the clouds showing the power of God. It says that uh, Isaiah 19, one, the oracle concerning Egypt. In other words, God is saying something here about Egypt. Behold, hey, another, <laughs> another use of behold. behold. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble, tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them these clouds indicating the swiftness and the power with which God is going to come. Uh, there, there are a myriad of examples of, of clouds and uh, the kind of the shielding of the power and glory of God that, that is there because if we beheld his glory and his power, uh, it would be too much for us. We see that in Exodus 19. Uh, with the giving of the law to the the Israelites on Mount Sinai, the mountain was covered uh, in a cloud. Uh, Ezekiel 20 and verse 18, even the cloud wasn't enough to uh, squelch the fear of the Israelites. You know, oh, they heard the the voice of God. Yeah, I, we don't want to hear that anymore, Moses. You you go up there, be our representative, and then you come down and tell us we don't want to hear uh, directly from God anymore. He's too much. He's too powerful. Ezekiel chapter 30 and verse three says, for the day is near, even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. Uh, Zephaniah 1.15, another book, a very short book in the Old Testament that describes the, the second coming of the Lord to rule and to reign over this earth. Zephaniah 1.15 says, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. You know, we had a, we had a bad storm roll through here not too long ago, and there were thick clouds and lightning and thunder, obviously, strong winds and all of these kinds of things. So people who are poetic will compare the dark clouds and the things that go along with a storm with the power of God and the things that he is going to do in the world. 
And this is no different. That's why it says, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. It is, it is an indication of the power of God. And we see that not just in the Old Testament, but there are many uh, references or many uses of, of clouds, literal clouds, uh, that, st- that show the same kind of thing. Uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, at least anyway, the Mount of Transfiguration, each of the Matthew, Mark, and Luke speak of the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was seen uh, partially, at least in his glory. Uh, Matthew 17.5 says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Man, that word behold, it just keeps showing up in about every one of these passages. These are things that God wants us to pay attention to. Uh, Notice the sign of the son of man has these Cloud, these clouds are mentioned also that Jesus speaks of the sign of the Son of Man in Matthew 24. If you'll remember, the Olivet Discourse uh, is where Jesus is asked a series of questions about what, what's it going to be like at the end of the world, at the end of this age. What can we expect uh, to happen? Jesus, oh, good question. He tells them, Matthew 24 and 25 is a description of the things that are going to take place. A uh, book of Revelation in many, if you will. And we'll talk about those things when we get there, particularly Revelation chapter 6. We'll uh, be able to talk about, compare some of these things that Jesus speaks of there in Matthew 24 with what we see events taking place in the tribulation. One of those events is him coming again. Matthew 24, 30. Jesus says, and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He mentions this sign of the son of man in each of the synoptic gospels again. Uh, Mark 13, 26, Luke uh, 21 and verse 27 also makes mention of these Jesus Christ coming again with the clouds of the sky uh, to establish his kingdom. Matthew and... uh, 26 and and verse 64, Jesus mentions these clouds again during his trial. Mark 14, 62, Jesus to the Pharisees. He really didn't kind of pull any punches when he was uh, speaking to people. Mark 16 or 14, 62, even when his life is on the line. It says, and Jesus said, when he's asked, basically, you know, are, are you the son of man, essentially? I am, he says. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That, again, is a reference to the book of Daniel. Uh, the, the Jewish authorities would have been very familiar with the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 7, you see the Ancient of Days, this Son of Man. He's, he is equal with the Father. He's receiving a kingdom, and then he's going to rule and to reign. They ask him, are you that one? Yes, in fact, I am. So he's claiming deity in this statement. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of, the po- of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And notice also that these clouds come in and this mention of clouds comes in in the book of Acts. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Of course, this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You know, is he going to come again to the earth uh, physically and be here upon this earth or is, or is this it? 
Uh, Jesus is, is ruling and reigning in heaven. Uh, his throne is there. He's on, he's on the throne of God now. And uh, the church is his kingdom. And this is it. I, I am certainly glad that that is not the case because uh, this, this world uh, isn't, isn't much, uh, isn't much to uh, hope for uh, in the way that it exists now, but the way that God is going to make it be is something to hope for and is something to look forward to, uh, living, ruling and reigning with Christ literally upon this earth is something to look forward to. And it's something that the Bible teaches he's going to come again just exactly the same way that he left. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. Uh, he meets with his disciples in his resurrected body. It says, and after he had said these things, he, Jesus, was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. Verse 10, and as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? What are you doing? They didn't, there weren't any airplanes back then or anything really to look at except for the birds. What, why are you guys just standing there staring at the sky? And they says, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. The same way you saw him go, being taken into the clouds and disappearing is the same way he's going to come again. Revelation 1.7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. What a, an incredible blessing this is. Now, that as uh, good dispensationalists that we are, you're all sitting out there uh, thinking, well, is this the rapture or is this the second coming? What is, what is John describing here? Uh, both events actually mention clouds that we see in the Bible. So which one is he talking about? Well, I'll just give away the answer so we don't uh, spend too much time getting bogged down. There are many, many differences from Scripture using a literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation consistently. When we cover these passages, we see differences between the rapture and the second coming of Christ to the earth. So, uh, I'll give you the answer ahead of time. I firmly believe that he is talking about the second coming here. That's what the book of Revelation is primarily about. Him coming again to the earth to make all things new. Solve all the problems of sin. How is that going to take place? It's going to take place uh, through these events that we learn about in the book of Revelation. So the, the, the rapture of the church, you know, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58, great places to go to learn um, about the rapture of the church. The second coming, uh, Revelation chapter 19, uh, the book of Zephaniah, uh, the book... Uh, there's just a myriad of books. Daniel uh, talks about it. it. It's talked about throughout, uh, particularly the prophets in the Old Testament. Zechariah 14, we see another uh, place where the second coming uh, is spoken of. And there are differences between those two, these two groups of passages, if you will. The rapture passages, nothing about the earth, nothing about uh, a kingdom, him establishing a kingdom, uh, nothing about judgment, death, destruction, any of these kinds of things. The rapture passages talk about the air, coming in the air. Second coming passages talk about the earth, coming literally to the earth. Uh, Rapture passages talk about a delivery for the righteous. 
That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 is all about. The, the righteous people being caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Second coming passages are about judgment for the wicked, judgment for unbelievers, almost exclusively. Uh, the righteous really aren't mentioned uh, very much in second coming passages at all. Revelation 19 being an exception, the righteous are coming again with Christ and the wicked are being destroyed. Rapture passages talk about a resurrection to life. Uh, it's it's life giving, a life-giving event. Second coming passages, death for the wicked. Rapture, Jesus Christ comes to rescue people. First uh, Thessalonians 1.10, Romans 5.9. Uh, we'll see a, a rescue mention in Revelation. Revelation 3.10, if memory serves. Uh, and he comes to rule in second coming passages. There's no mention of rule in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, John 14. No mention of that. But Christ, make no mistake, one day he is coming to rule. We'll see that in Revelation, of course, uh, when we get there. The rapture is an imminent event. It can happen at any moment in time. Uh, There's no signs that are mentioned to precede it. There are most definitely signs mentioned to precede the second coming. Christ in the Olivet Discourse is urging those people who are alive at that time to pay attention to the signs. That's what he's asked about. What are the signs of your coming? I'm glad you asked. Here you go. Here they are. Uh, No mention of signs for the rapture. The rapture is a comfort. Uh, you, You can be comforted. You're supposed to be comforted by the promise of the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 18. Uh, The second coming for unbelievers, that that ought not to be a comfort. It ought not to be a comfort for us because, of course, we all know unbelievers. That's why it should spur us on to, to action. It is most definitely, the second coming is most definitely a warning. Here's another chart that I'm sure we're going to see as we make our way through Revelation, comparing uh, rapture passages on the left side to Revelation 19. Why are those? Why, why could the rapture not possibly be combined to be an event that is being described in Revelation 19? Revelation 19, 11 through 21, undisputedly uh, is Christ coming again to rule and reign upon the earth. Behold, verse 7, he is coming with the clouds. That event takes place in Revelation 19. It's described in greater detail there. Uh, These passages are about believers, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. The main uh, protagonist, if you will, in Revelation 19 are unbelievers, describing their doom. Again, believers are resurrected in rapture passages. They are killed in second coming, particular, particularly Revelation 19. Unbelievers, the, the, their death is described. Uh, believers are caught up to heaven in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and John 14, uh, undisputably taken to the Father's house in John 14, not to the earth. Revelation 19 describes believers descending with the Lord to the earth. His word gives life in rapture passages. That two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. That's just figurative language for the power of the word of Christ. That's what he's going to take life with. Rapture passages lead to eternal life with the Lord The second coming leads to eternal separation for unbelievers. So they they are unequivocally two separate events. They are described very differently in Scripture. 
So when are they going to take place? Good, good question. Uh, here's our timeline again. When the church age ends, the church age will end with the catching up of the church. And that is an imminent event. Uh, we will make the case later for exactly why we believe that happens before Revelation chapter 6 begins For now, it takes place at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. The second coming very clearly comes at the end of the tribulation. Just period. (laughs) End of discussion. A legitimate case cannot be made when taking in, when interpreting the Bible consistently, literally, Old and New Testament, the Messiah comes at the end of a period of tribulation, Daniel 9.27 tells us it's seven literal years. Antichrist rules for a time, times and a half a time. That's three and a half years. The second half of that seven-year period is when the Antichrist will rule and then Christ will come again. That's what's described in Revelation 7. And then the kingdom. He has to come before the kingdom can start in order to have a kingdom, right? (laughs) Don't you have to have the king in place before the kingdom can begin? I mean, that's just kind of logic there. And that's what's described in Revelation chapter 20, coincidentally enough, right after Revelation 19. Then it says, for a thousand years, Christ rules and reigns on the earth. So again, we see rapture, distinct from second coming. So which one is this speaking of in Revelation 1-7? Well, the theme of the entire uh, letter, the entire book is encapsulated in these two verses. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is to come and establish a new heaven and a new earth. That's what Revelation is about. That will begin to happen at his second coming when he comes again with the clouds. That's that's the very theme of the book. So in the context of the book itself, he is talking about Christ coming again to establish his kingdom upon the earth. And that's why Revelation 1-7 is not describing the rapture, but instead describing the second coming when he comes with the clouds in great power to establish his kingdom. Furthermore, uh, we see that these that the people of the earth are going to mourn over him when he comes again. I don't think there's going to be personally there a tremendous amount of mourning when Christ comes again to rapture the church. I think people are going to be the ones who are left in large part, a, a whole lot of them are going to be kind of happy. Oh, we finally got rid of those Christians. We don't have to worry about them anymore. We've been striving to eradicate these people and their thinking and their influence over the world. We've been canceling them on Facebook and Google and everywhere else. And lo and behold, they're out of here. We don't have to worry about them anymore. And things are going to get kind of ugly when that takes place afterwards. Uh, Notice that he is, his presence is going to be uh, known by all, even those who pierced him. Behold, verse 7 again, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. Every eye will see him. This is, this is again very different from the rapture, when he comes in the clouds, catches up believers. I don't think it's going to be an event that can be ignored, but this is literally describing something that everyone sees. And that's what Jesus describes in uh, Matthew 24, 29, and 30. It is, a, it is an event uh, that cannot be missed. Again, notice 
When that takes place, Jesus says, Matthew 24, 29, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its lights, light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on uh, on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory this it's like lightning flashing at night you can close your eyes if you're standing outside in a thunderstorm which probably isn't recommended but you can close your eyes even if you're laying in your bed you still see the flashes of light this is kind of a similar kind of thing nobody is going to be able to escape recognizing that Jesus Christ will come again. Every eye will see him, it says in verse 7. Even those who pierced him. And the apostle John is the one who's writing this, and he was somebody who was very familiar with the piercing of Jesus Christ. Notice what his gospel says, John, the gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 31 Speaking of Jesus's crucifixion, it says, Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen and he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. John saw this with his own two eyes and this is an important event. Jesus being pierced, his legs not being broken. Why? Why might you ask? Verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says they shall look on him whom they pierced. This was not coincidence. John is saying that Jesus was pierced here. Uh, Rather than having his legs broken, it proves who Jesus is because the word of God prophesied hundreds of years before this event took place that his bones wouldn't be broken. And in fact, he's going to be pierced. Even those who pierced him will look upon him. John was an eyewitness to this fulfillment of scripture. So uh, who pierced uh, Christ? Did the Jews pierce Christ or did the Romans or Gentiles pierce Christ? Yes. Good question. And yes is the answer. Jews had him on the cross. They're responsible for him to be being there. Uh, A Gentile Roman soldier is the one who put the spear into his side. But Jews and Gentiles, you and me, and every other person is responsible for him being there. And so uh, that's just giving us an indication of what is being spoken of here. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. What could this be describing? Oh, well, it tells us even more information. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. And I'll be honest with you, coming into this passage, I, was, I, I had a presupposition coming into this passage because I'd already studied it before and, and not in the depth that I did this week or uh, really by any stretch. But personally, Zechariah chapter 12, this is a reference to Zechariah chapter 12. This idea of him being pierced, that's what John is saying. They shall look on him whom they pierce. That's Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10 mentions that event taking place. We're not going to take the time to do it because uh, I really want to get through 
all of these passages. But uh, Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 10 and going down through verse 14, describes this piercing, describes unequivocally the nation of Israel mourning over this the Son of Man being killed, being pierced, uh, and that they are going to look on him again one day when he comes again. There is going to be great mourning in the nation of Israel because the scales are going to fall off. They're going to realize, oh, wow, for the last 2,000 plus years, we have had it wrong. Those Christians were right. Jesus is the Christ. He is our Messiah. We are responsible for killing him, the Son of Man. Our Messiah, our people killed him. And there's going to be great mourning. And that is a clear reference to the tribes of Israel mourning over him. And that the people in the land uh, seeing this take place. And it's interesting, this word for land in the Greek, or or actually... uh, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth, it's uh, translated as gi is the Greek term, eretz is the Hebrew term. And when you see eretz in the Old Testament, uh, it can be translated as earth or just a generic piece of land. But every time that the nation of Israel is referred to or their piece of territory is referred to as the land, It uses that same word, Eretz. So many, many times, if not most of the time, you see Eretz or land, uh, it can be translated, it's referring to Israel. And I, I, you know, I'll be honest, I kind of had uh, in some way a lack of faith, if you will. You know, how is every eye going to see Christ come again? When he does, if he's literally coming to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 tells us that, that he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. How is that going to happen? How is every person going to see him? It makes a whole lot more sense if it's just uh, the land, Israel, the tribes of Israel. Well, I can believe that. That's, you know, him coming, if the meteor flashes over uh, uh, Israel, everybody there in the land can see it, could probably see that. Um, but <laughs> that's not what Revelation is about. Revelation isn't about uh, Israel. Revelation is about worldwide judgment. It's about Jews and Gentiles being responsible for Christ being on the cross and Jesus Christ dying for Jews and Gentiles and coming again and establishing his kingdom over the whole earth, not just uh, the nation of Israel, but everywhere this kingdom is. So even uh, Robert Thomas, whose commentary I would highly recommend on Revelation, he mentions this theory, if you will, of, of this being a reference to just Uh, the nation of Israel. He says it's a valid uh, theory. So I'm reading and thinking, all right, good. Uh, I'm good in in my thought here. And then goes on to proceed, but Revelation is really about the world. Yes, Zechariah might be describing what's happening in Israel, but Revelation is not just describing Israel. It's describing the world, the overall context of Revelation couldn't be any more clearly judgment on the whole world. And that's what's being described here. So how is every eye, how is a person in Antarctica, some scientist down there when Christ comes again, and somebody in Moscow going to see Christ when he comes again? Uh, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to happen, but it's going to happen. The whole world sees the sunshine, maybe not all at the same time, but the whole world can see the sunshine. Uh, Christ created the sun. He's got some way of making that happen. And we can rest assured that one day it will happen. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all of the tribes of not just Israel, but the entire world 
are going to mourn over him because as we're going to see, these judgments are coming upon the entire world in the book of Revelation, and they're hardening people. You would think, oh man, a hurricane, like, you know, you could think in New Orleans, oh, a hurricane just came through, obvious, destructive, power, natural occurrence. Man, maybe I ought to straighten up my act and get right with God before something worse happens. No, that's not what we see in Revelation. These horrendous judgments come, and these people are hardened against God. But when he comes again, they're going to realize that they were wrong. And there was, there's going to be great mourning upon the earth. So it is to be. Amen. Verse 7 ends with this uh, statement here could not, is in an, an emphatic yes. This is going to take place. Yes, truly. Yes, certainly. This is going to take place. And so that reminds me of people, quite frankly, who disregard this book, who want to not pay attention to it, who want to, who want to uh, say, oh, we don't want to talk about prophecy in our church because there's so much disagreement. Uh, that's a mistake. Second Peter 3, 3. And, and quite frankly, those who say, oh, he already came. He came, in the, he came in, the, in the clouds of the judgment in A.D. 70, and this is just kind of it. There really isn't a kingdom uh, to look forward to in the future. This is as good as it gets. Praise the Lord. Yikes. Not a lot of hope in that. But notice Peter has an answer for that. Second Peter 3, 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. In other words, every that's this Peter, he's brilliant. Uh, the, almost 2000 years before Darwin came along with his theory of evolution and all of these kinds of things that he is describing their basic theory. It's always been the same. Universalism. Nothing dramatic has ever taken place. That's why they need billions and billions of years for their system to work. Peter says, uh, yeah, no, that's not, <laughs> that's not the way it is. It used to be one way, and that way was destroyed by a flood that uh, destroyed the, the entire earth. Verse 7, by his word, the present heavens and earth are being, uh, verse 7 says, but by his word, after this flood took place, but by his word, verse 7, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. Some will point to this and a thousand years like one day. Oh, see right there. It says a thousand years or, or like a day. That thousand years it's mentioned in Revelation. Uh, that's not really a thousand year kingdom. It says right here, Second Peter 3, 8, one day is like a thousand years. Well, there's no word like in the book of Revelation. Like there is here, that is uh, what's known as a simile. There's no simile in Revelation chapter 20. This is poetic language. In other words, uh, time is kind of immaterial to uh, God in this respect. Verse 9, the Lord, however, even though it might take more than 2,000 years before Christ comes again since he's been here, one day he's going to, because verse 9 says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. 
Uh, God doesn't want this to happen, this second coming, which results in destruction and eternal separation for unbelievers until people have a chance to believe. And that's what he wants us to do with our time. Be witnesses for him. Be a light for him in this world because it is a certainty that one day he is coming again, and he is coming in preeminence. Revelation 1, 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. John also refers to him as the Word if you'll remember from John 1, 1, he, he is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, he's the word in that he's the alpha and the omega and every letter in between and all the words that can be made with those. He is our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, our renewer. You can see all of that in, uh, in those passages. John 1, 1, he created everything. Uh, Genesis 3.15, from the very beginning, when man sinned, God promised he would make things right. That's Jesus Christ. By him, all things consist. They hold together. And he is the one who, who will renew all things. Revelation 21 and verse 5. And he is the eternal one says he's the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Uh, Revelation 4.8, this eternality of God is something that is, is worshipped. It's him being holy and that scene in heaven. Revelation 11.17, which we'll see is a look forward to when Christ begins to reign. It says we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. This is the one uh, with whom we have to deal uh, in our own lives. He is coming again. Now, I know that the, the overwhelming majority of us are people who have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, there could be people online who haven't. Uh, maybe there's people in, in this room who haven't ever trusted in him. And I'll be honest with you, he is your only hope because one day he's coming again to this earth and he's not coming to uh, what's described here. He's not coming to rescue people. He's not coming to save people. He's coming to uh, judge the world the second time he comes to this earth and establish his kingdom. And it's a righteous kingdom and only righteous people can come into this kingdom. And we can only have righteousness by one way. And it isn't by being in the right religion, going to the right church, doing the right uh, things with your life, following the right set of rules. It only comes through faith in Christ and his sacrifice for your sins on the cross. And when when you do that, when you recognize you're a sinner, he's God in human flesh. He died for my sins. Uh, and you trust in that and that alone, he gives you his righteousness. He transfers his righteousness from him, which is eternal and, and uh, infinite. And he gives you a part of that. He makes you righteous through trusting in him. And then you are exempt from this judgment that is to come in the future. He can do that because he's the alpha and the omega. He is the one who is, who was, and who is to come again in the future. And this is the one that we serve. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this ancient text of Revelation that is uh, 2,000 years old and still has such a message that uh, if we're paying any attention at all to the news, we know is becoming uh, not less relevant, but even more and more relevant as we go through time, as we know 
that the time is most certainly drawing near for you to judge this wicked world. And we thank you for the salvation that we can have through faith in Christ that you made available by sacrificing your perfect self upon the cross for our sins. And and you offer salvation to us simply by trusting in what you have done. And like it says in Revelation, any person who is thirsty, anyone who wants to, whosoever will may come and drink from this fountain of eternal life that is Jesus Christ. And we thank you and praise you for that. We look forward to you coming again for us in the clouds to catch us up, to be with you, to take us back to the Father's house. And we certainly rejoice in that and are comforted by that. But we know that the message of the book of Revelation is that we need to get busy, that uh, these events are certain to take place. This judgment is certain to take place. And it is going to be horrendous for those who are left behind. So may you you and your Holy Spirit empower us to do the work that you have for us to do in the meantime. And we will give you all of the praise and the glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.